One is greater than seven. That's where we are for these weeks. We believe there is one, God Himself, who grants us a remedy for all of our struggles, whatever they might be, our various temptations, that He provides a way out of them as we learn to increasingly live in His kingdom. And today we're going to speak about the greatest of all sins, which is pride. And next Sunday we're going to speak about its remedy, which is humility in the presence of God. This is an area of struggle that is really too big for one week. So we'll spend a couple weeks on it. One of my favorite authors is a man named Dallas Willard, who passed away some two years ago of cancer. And he's someone that I've gone back to over and over again. He's kind of like a dead mentor that I've never met. You have any of those? Some author that just continues to speak to your heart in a way that few are able to. And he's been one of those for me. And so I returned to him again and again. And I recently read a story about Dallas Willard when he was teaching at University of Southern California. He's well known for his spiritual writings, writing on living in the presence of Christ. But he had a day job of being a philosopher at the University of Southern California. And he has this booming intellect. And he was concluding one of his classes to a, a group of undergrad philosophy students. And there was one student in the class who was feeling particularly arrogant and antagonistic. And so he stood up and he strongly disagreed in a very arrogant and antagonistic way with one of the points that Willard was making. And there was another student in the class that loved Willard and loved his intellect. And it was joked about Willard that he was smart enough that he could make you believe that you didn't exist if he wanted to. He just was that kind of philosopher that kind of puts you in your, your place. And so this other student was waiting for Professor Willard to lower the boom. And Dr. Willard pauses in that moment and he replies, well, I think this is probably a good place for our class to end for today. You all can be dismissed and uh, we'll pick up there next time. Thanks for joining us today. And so the students filed out of the room and that student that was waiting for him to lower the boom waited for all the students to leave. And then he went up to Dr. Willard and said, uh, why didn't you let him have it? He was totally wrong and he was so arrogant in what he was saying. Why didn't you just let him have it? And Dallas replied, I'm practicing the discipline of not having the final word. I'm practicing the discipline of not needing to have the final word. How much I desire to become that kind of man. To be so secure in my connection with God, so secure in my life within the kingdom of God, that I don't need to constantly defend myself, I don't need to have the final word. But there's something that stands in the way, at least for me and Perhaps you can relate. It's called pride. It is the fundamental human struggle. It is the primordial human temptation that all of us wrestle with in one way or another. And frankly, it's pride more than any other temptation which can stand in the way between us and the beautiful, glorious life that God intends for us today. This is the struggle from which Every other struggle arises. It's significant to note that 
the Apostle John breaks down the seven deadly sins into just three deadly sins. In the back of your Bible, in 1 John chapter 2, you'll see this passage. You don't need to turn there right now, but this is the Apostle John who spent the most time with Jesus, along with Peter and his brother James. And he was with Jesus throughout his, uh, his ministry life, and there at the resurrection, and there uh, at the crucifixion before it. And, and he said this of true life in the kingdom of God. He said, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is simply not in them. For everything in the world, be it the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes or the pride of life, the boastful pride of life, comes not from the Father but comes from the world. And each of the seven deadlies can be categorized into one of those three And I'll make the point today that even those three can be categorized under the one, which is pride. You think about it, the lust of the flesh, that's the hedonistic urge. And the hedonist urge asks, what will satisfy me? What will give me the most pleasure? And from it, you get gluttony and sloth and lust. And then you get the pride or the lust of the eyes. And the lust of the eyes is the covetous urge that says, I need more. This is what we talked about last week. And with that is greed. How can I get more because I am not satisfied with what I have? Or how dare that person have more than me? I am envious of what that person has. And then finally, you have the pride of life. And that's the boastful urge that looks out for number one and says, did anyone notice me? Why didn't anyone notice me? Could somebody please notice me and say something nice to me? From which we get anger that you all didn't notice me. And pride. And this is the greatest of all sins. C.S. Lewis, in his magnum opus, Mere Christianity, put it this way. Pride is the utmost evil, the essential vice, the complete anti-God state of mind, the pleasure of being above the rest always looking down on people. A proud man is always looking down on things and on people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something above you. It is truly the mother of all sins. Christianity has frequently confused over the years what is the center of Christian ethics. And many Christians over the centuries have suggested that sexuality is the center of Christian ethics, and that's false. There is no biblical warrant to that. Sexual sin is serious, to be sure. It is very serious, not least of which because it has the power to tie us up physically and psychologically, perhaps in a way that no other sin can. But the center of Christian ethics is not sexual sin. The center of Christian ethics is a proper view of God. And with it, a proper view of self. If you're taking notes today, get that. The center of Christian ethics is a proper view of God, and with it, a proper view of self. And a proper view of God will always trigger awe. It will always trigger a sense of amazement, a sense of wonder, as we just sang. Wasn't there a sense of wonder in the room? A proper view of God will always trigger that sense of wonder, that sense of awe, of amazement at how incredibly awesome and totally other than is God. 
And it will also always trigger a proper sense of humility that we recognize if God is like that, then I, re- I regularly put myself into subjection to him, into submission to him. And he is on the throne and I am not. Pride, unfortunately, elevates self while diminishing God. Again, it was the very first sin. This was the sin that led an archangel named Lucifer to become a fallen demon named Satan. This was the original sin committed by the original couple, Adam and Eve, when something beyond what God had offered was presented to them by Satan. You just think about this with the very first sin in the garden, how beautiful that original garden was. God said, all that I have made is so good. It is so beautiful. There is no pollution. There is no litter. There is no disharmony between people. There is connection with God. You think about it. There was perfect harmony in every relationship when God first made the world. There was harmony between man and God, between woman and God. There was harmony between man and woman. There was harmony with self. And there is harmony with the earth. And God says, all of this is yours. I give this to you to steward. It is so good, and I give it to you to steward, to take good care of. You get to be a farmer over this and to treat it with respect and with love and to harness what is good that I made out of it. Take care of it. Enjoy it. Steward it well. And then you see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 3, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And so this is what God does for Adam and Eve, and frankly, this is what God does for each of us. He provides certain boundary lines. All of this I have given you is so good. Enjoy it. But here are these boundary lines that you are not to trespass for your own good. And if you know the story, what happened next? Then that deceiver who was cast down from heaven comes before this original couple. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die if you eat of it. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be, underline this in your Bible, you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. In other words, God is holding out on you. He may have given you all of this, but clearly he is holding out on you. He doesn't want what is best for you. You know that you want to be like him, and you should deserve to be like him. In fact, you do deserve what he has not given you. You will not surely die. This is the temptation that you will be like God. You will have surpassing knowledge that what God has offered to you is not sufficient So when the woman saw that the tree, when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate as well. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And friends, this is just the downward spiral of sin in our hearts. We say God's way, God's provision is not quite enough, so I will go with my own way. And the consequence for them was 
with shame. I want my way. Then we get, get convicted of going for my way. And that leads to shame as they experience here. They recognize they are naked and they feel ashamed of it. And then they get into the blame game. Just like we do when we fall into sin, right? Oh, it was his fault. The serpent made me do it. And Adam says, oh, it was her fault. You gave me this woman and she made me do it. The ultimate and original sin of passivity there far from the man. Here it is, the primordial sin that has affected us ever since. And I know that many people still today treat this as an allegory. And some people treat this story as uh, something that maybe never happened. And if you're in that boat today that you treat this as an allegory or something that never happened, you're certainly more than welcome in here. And we can talk about that. We can have conversation about that. I personally believe this actually happened. I think this is what the scriptures uh, teach, and I believe it actually happened. But beyond it actually happening, here's the main point that I want you to hold from this story for today. This is not merely Adam and Eve's story. This is our story. Is it not? This is our story. God, I've given you all of, the, or God says, I've given you all of this, and we say to God, all that you have given me is not quite enough, because you have put a boundary line around, and I disagree with that boundary line, and I am going to be the authority that says, I'm going to touch beyond that boundary line. It's the same narrative that says, I will add to this word. It's the same narrative that says, I will subtract from this word when this word is no longer convenient for me. It's the same narrative that says, how dare you, Jesus, to say you are the way, the truth, and the life that no man comes to the Father except through me. I mean, how arrogant of you to say that and for us to apply it in 2016. At least with all the different religions in the world, there should be five or six ways, right? To which, can I just tell you, if God were to give us five or six ways in our pride, we would demand seven ways? If God were to give us 10 or 11 or 12 ways, we would demand 13 ways. Because this is the essence of human nature, to say, God, what you have given is not enough. What we should do instead is simply to give thanks and praise to God that he has provided a way for us when he did not need to. The natural way of the heart is to say, God is holding out on me. I am in authority, which places God where? And so what we like to say, like the great Frank Sinatra, I'm going to do it my way. Okay? But God says, will you do it my way? I invite you to receive life in all of its goodness. In my kingdom, under my reign, it will be best for you right there. This is the, the root of every other sin. It's the mother of all sins, and it's the root of every other sin. You think about it, why do people lie? People lie so that you don't know the real me. Why do people get greedy? Because I deserve something that I have not been given. I haven't been provided as much as I deserve. But why do people get angry? Because I somehow was offended. Why do I turn on the radio and get envious when I hear Chuck Swindoll? Because he's all that, and I ain't all that, 
Okay, so envy rises up in my belly. Or you, who do you get envious of? It's all oriented towards self, that I am not this, someone else is that, and I long for that because I am not satisfied with the way God has made me. The common denominator is me, myself, and I. It truly is the mother of all sins, and pride is simultaneously the natural tendency of every heart. It's the urge to hide the true self, and it's the urge to elevate a false self. In one way or another, this is the natural operation for all of us. And, and you might say, well, I'm, I'm not prideful, Adrian. I'm not boastful. I'm not arrogant. And, and, and you may not be, um, but I would guess there is a sin of self that you deal with, just like there are a number of sins of self that I deal with. And all of the self-sins, whether it be self-consciousness or self-centeredness, self-hatred or self-sufficiency, all of those are oriented around self. Pride is this ugly web that goes around in different directions and then ultimately curves back toward, again, toward me, myself, and I. It truly is the sin from which every other sin arises. i got to look out for number one. Now, here's a little secret. Uh, what, what I'm about to say is a little bit controversial, but I'm going to say it anyway. Pride is the worst amongst religious people. I see some heads nodding. A few people have experienced that. I'm not saying it's worst amongst religious people than it is amongst the general population, but I'd say it's worst amongst religious people, and perhaps even the worst when you see it in Christians, because it is inherently something that seems like it should never be. We recognize pride in religious people, and we say, isn't it the case that if someone calls in the name of Christ, they are to be exalting Christ, exalting God, and not exalting self? And moreover, when we see pride amongst religious people, it almost always reeks of hypocrisy. And so it's got this foul smell that whenever we see it, we just want to run in the other direction. Religious pride frequently looks like this. Uh, can I secretly mention to you how often I read my Bible? Can I find a way to just kind of slip in how generous I am? Have I mentioned how frequently I am involved in church activities? All of this is a posturing of a false self to make ourselves feel religiously superior, and then it makes other people feel religiously inferior. Have you been around that? It's a, it's a mask, if you will, that different people wear. And everyone has a different mask that we wear from time to time. This is my mask. I got it courtesy of a four-year-old boy in our home. <laughs> this is Captain Adrian. <laughs> Captain America, Adrian, always awesome, amazing, all the time attuned to God, and all the time attuned to you. 
all the time available to you and any number of additional A adjectives that you can think of. <laughs> and this is a load of junk. Sorry. If you came in here looking for super pastor, you'll have to go to a different church. Because I ain't that. But why do I want to wear this at times? And I do. Because I want you to think something of me, which is false. So take it off and acknowledge the truth that you got all kinds of warts, Adrian. You got all kinds of foibles. And you want to hide them from people so they don't see the real you, which is full of needs from others and still today full of all kinds of needs from God. We go around masquerading with this false religious veneer, and it doesn't help anyone, least of all us. And again, I want to tell you, it is exceedingly dangerous. It's dangerous for so many reasons. It's dangerous but because if you begin to believe that, you actually start to see yourselves as a little bit superior to others, and others as a little bit inferior to you. And most dangerous of all, if you begin to do that, this, this place of self-sufficiency rises up that you actually believe you don't need God. We actually can begin to believe this is true of us because so long as you are looking up to yourself and so long as we are looking down on others, we cannot see someone above us. This is the exceeding danger of pride. Jesus says this over in Matthew chapter 9. He is so helpful for us. As it relates to this specific issue, Jesus spoke on pride generally, but he spoke specifically and most frequently to the pride that is found within religious people. In Matthew 9, starting at verse 9, it says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me, and he rose and followed him. Matthew follows him for the next few years, and then later on he writes this very biography of Jesus. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, there were many tax collectors and sinners that were there. They came, and they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Doesn't he know he's not to be associated with such people? Doesn't he know that's not what religiously superior people do? Doesn't he know that if he was a real Pharisee, he wouldn't be hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. What does this mean? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It, it means that in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of sacrificial acts that one did. They were part of the religious ceremony, and those were accepted by God, but frequently people did those so that they could be accepted by God in order to earn God's approval and in order to look a certain spiritual way for others. And so the prophets routinely said, I desire something deeper than that. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What God desires is a heart, not our religious acts. And so, when we fall into this pattern of saying, I got myself all put together, Jesus would just look us right in the eyes. He would look me right in my eyes. Well, when I put this on, and he would say, I did not come for Captain Adrian. 
I came for those who know they need a doctor. I came for those who know they are not righteous in themselves, for those who know they are sinners who need to repent, fall upon their knees, and come to a Savior who will have them as they are again and again and again. Can I get an amen, please? It convicts me, and it's possible it convicts you, and today is on pride. Next Sunday we'll be on the antidote of pride. But we're reminded that the moment we fall upon our knees, he says, yes, I'll have you. The great musician Bono put it well when he was explaining his own conversion to Christ and his ongoing spiritual struggle. He explained, it was less I was lost and now I'm found and more I was really lost. I'm a little less so at the moment. Isn't that great? Isn't that your experience? I, I mean, you are found, you're in God's family, but do you feel like you're always found? Don't you still feel like you're wandering a little bit sometimes, like you're still on a journey to some degree? This is true for our spiritual development. I was really, really pitiful when you first met me. I'm a little bit less lost now. And to the extent that we just drop all religious pretenses, God has us exactly where he wants us. And I want you to know that we are trying to build a church here in which there are no points given to those who are holier than thou. We're trying to build a church here in which there are no brownie points for doing all of the right spiritual activities or needing to be all put together. We simply come to Christ, we come to this church community as we are, we say, Lord Jesus, will you take us as we are? Would you increase our capacity to understand the greatness of our God? We repent, we realize we have great need, we ask for your forgiveness, and we ask that you would change us. And as we do that, my friends, we actually can become the kinds of people who say, who believe, I don't need to have the final word. I'm practicing the discipline of not needing the final word because I'm so secure in Christ, I will allow him to defend me. Do you need a doctor? Anyone else? Raise your hand if you need a doctor. If you need a doctor, you simply admit that to Christ and he says, I am yours. I am your savior. I give you life again and again and again. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, how we thank you that you have no need for spiritual performance. You invite us to come to you as we are. Sometimes we come to church and we feel like raising our hands as we sing, and we can do that. Other times we come to our church and, and we can't even utter a word of prayer. We can't even utter the words of the songs, and that's okay too. But Father, we admit that there are is something in us that feels this need to gain approval from others or even to live for your approval. And we confess that to you right now, Lord Jesus, and we ask for your forgiveness for the many ways that we have pridefully lived for God's approval. Would you please forgive us as a church and grant us the grace to call upon your name and admit we don't have much to bring to you. Would you forgive us? Would you take us as we are? 
Would you grant us new life and would you grant us a new perspective that we could live from the approval we have in Christ as opposed to for approval from anyone? God, I thank you that this is becoming an authentic community in which we need not pretend. I pray that it would continue to grow in that way even as we experience baptisms today. None of these people are all put together. They're all in process. But they are saying today they are going to obey Christ. So we pray for them, Lord, as they come forward in just a moment for baptisms, though, that you would grant them a rich experience that arises out of obedience to the one alone who is God and that you would remind us of the same, that we simply obey you, we follow you, and you'll do a great work in us. We love you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.